Good morning, everybody. Our first group of campers actually got back from Butler Springs just yesterday. And uh, I don't know if you saw some of the pictures floating around, but uh, it looked like they had an awfully good time. So be sure that if you have a student who is in elementary school, uh, middle school, high school, who uh, wants to go to camp uh, to register as quickly as possible, uh, because some of the weeks are starting to fill up now that we're in the summer. Uh, and we don't want them to miss their chance. And of course, Brandon may have just said this, I'm not sure, but if it happens to be that you are running low on funds to be able to send your kids to camp, you let us know. There are all kinds of people here who have said, if anybody needs money, you let us know and, and I'll write a check. And so um, if you uh, are in that situation, uh, you let me know and it'll just be between me and you, right? I won't tell a soul and we'll make sure that you get the money you need so that your kids can go to camp. Uh, several years back, uh, I was teaching at the college, and uh, they, they assigned me the job of teaching three different classes in three different buildings, and there's only 10 minutes between classes, uh, and it's not a huge walk because it's a small campus, but it's enough, you know, because if you even say uh, one thing to a student after class, you pretty much have, have run into the problem of not being able to have enough time to get from one place to the other, you know? And so I recognized that I was going to have to like carry around with me everything I needed. Because what I used to do is just leave it in the car, you know. It's in the car. You don't have to haul it around everywhere you go. And so I got this big backpack, and I filled it full of, full of stuff. And I was walking around campus. That lasted for about two weeks before I was like broken down because of the weight of this backpack. You know, I was like, well, this isn't going to work. And so I went and bought a messenger bag because I thought that might be a little bit easier. And that worked, but it's just that one side of my body hurt instead of both sides of my body, you know. And so then I was like, well, I got to do something else about this. And so I ended up buying this little bitty bag that I carry around with me. Kristen affectionately calls it my man purse, and I guess it kind of is. But this little bag that has all the stuff I need in it just for teaching. Because what I realized is I don't have to take everything I own everywhere I go with me. Like, that's what I was doing at first, you know. But now I've discovered I just need it, you know, like, I've got some markers to write on the whiteboard with. I've got a timer if we're doing some kind of collaboration group. You know, I can time them. i got my iPad so that I can pull up students' grades when they argue with me about what kind of grade they get. And, you know, those kind of things uh, that, that I bring with me. And what I discovered when I bought this bag is that there is a whole industry out there that is designed around making sure you have exactly the right amount of stuff to carry with you everywhere you go. There, there are literally thousands of videos on YouTube that are all about everyday carry. They're all about picking the perfect wallet or the perfect umbrella or the perfect pocket knife or whatever, like the perfect thing that you need so that you'll never have to be without, but don't take too much with you because you don't want to carry it. Instead, just enough so that you can make it through the day, you know? And there are people who make these videos and they have these websites, and what they do is they try to find the perfect combination of bag and stuff so that you'll never get anywhere and be without the things that you need. The whole point of this is to try to get to the essentials of what you need to carry with you everywhere you go. And so I thought about that, and I thought, you know, maybe we could do a series together where we talk about some of the essentials of what it is that we believe as a church, you know? Like, look, we can't talk about everything that our church or, or churches in general believe. You can't do that. There's tons of it, right? Literally, this is a lifelong process of trying to learn all that there is out there uh, for God to teach us. But at least we can get to the bottom of some of the most essential things that we might want to carry with us every day 
as we uh, enter into this great big world that God has made. And so that's our plan. For the next several weeks, we're going to talk about some of the most important topics, like the basics of what we believe about these really essential parts of our Christian faith. And so we're going to talk about like God, and we're going to talk about Jesus and the Holy Spirit, and we're going to talk about the church, and we're going to talk about communion, all sorts of things uh, that are important for us to learn and to get a, a, a little grasp on if we're going to have a basic understanding of who we are as God's people. Well, today we're going to talk about God. Now listen, it, it is a pipe dream to think that you can tell all that there is to say about God in a 20-minute sermon, okay? This is just silly to even think about. And we're not even going to scratch the surface of what God is and has been doing in the world. But I hope that we can at least get some little bit of the story of who God is, maybe the most essential parts, so that we can have some understanding of how it is that we are in relationship with Him. When I thought about how to plan this lesson for today, I, I went to my bookshelf and I looked at the things there and thought, okay, what resources can I use here to help me make my mind up about what it is that I want to say? And one of the first thoughts that came to my mind is that I need to pick up a systematic theology. Y'all ever picked up a systematic theology before? Do you even know what that is? It is a book where some scholar sat down and said, I'm going to try to explain everything that there is to explain about God inside this one book. And these books, you might imagine, are super thick, and they are incredibly complicated to understand. They are like the nightmare of all people who ever went to Bible college or seminary, you know, because you're expected to sift through this dense material trying to sort out who it is that God is. And so I went on my shelf, and I looked to find mine, and what I discovered is that it wasn't there, and so I'm assuming that at some point in Bible college I, I burned it in protest or something, I don't know. But then I went over to Preston's office, and he had one on his shelf. And so I got it off, and I started looking through it, and I started thinking about, okay, what are the most important things that I want to say about God? And then it just hit me all of a sudden that this is silly. It's silly for me to use this book because there's no way I could ever begin to describe all the things that this book says. And God, when he wanted to tell us about himself, did not give us a systematic theology. I mean, he didn't write down for us this systematized list of all the things that we need to know about him. Do you know what God gave us instead? God gave us a story. And so I thought that maybe the best thing for us to do today is just to consider the story of who God is based on what God has written about himself in his word. Now again, we can't go from Genesis to Revelation all in one day, right? But have you ever read that book like the most important things I ever learned, I learned in kindergarten. I don't remember exactly the title, but it's something like that, right? Well, it's kind of the same way for the Bible. Many of the most important things that we can learn about who God is, it turns out we can learn right up front in the very beginning of the book of Genesis. And so that's what our hope is today, that we can work through a couple of these stories in the book of Genesis to get some understanding about who God actually is. And so if you have a Bible, you can turn with me to the book of Genesis chapter 1, and we're going to read together a few of the verses there. Maybe these verses are familiar to you. I hope that they are. Here's what the Bible says, Genesis 1 verse 1. It says, In the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered over the deep waters, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface 
of the waters. If you've ever read much about ancient Near Eastern literature, you might know that there are these great stories that come from the part of the world where the Bible comes from, all about how it is that they believe the gods created the world. And one thing that these stories all have in common is that all of these people, Canaanite, Babylonian, no matter who you look at over there, they all thought that God created the world by destroying some kind of violent, chaotic sea monster. It sounds crazy, I know, but that's what they thought. They thought about a world that was full of chaos all because of this god or this sea monster that controlled the sea. And the way the gods would create the world often was by killing that sea monster and then using that sea monster's body to create what we know of as the heavens and the earth. I think that's why the book of Genesis opens with those words that I just read. It's the book of Genesis's way of saying, oh, we know all the world thinks that the world was created by God killing the sea monsters, but that's not exactly right. No, the world was created when our God spoke to the sea and it listened. Now, I'm going to read to you the things that God says to those primordial waters. In fact, I'm going to read the whole chapter, so buckle in. All right, here we go. Here's what it says. Genesis chapter 1, verse 3. It says, Then God said, Let there be light. And there was light. And God saw that the light was good. Then he separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the first day. Then God said, Let there be a space between the waters to separate the waters of the heavens from the waters of the earth. And that is what happened. God made this space to separate the waters of the earth from the waters of the heavens. God called the space sky. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the second day. Then God said, let the waters beneath the sky flow together into one place, so dry ground may appear. And that is what happened. God called the dry ground land and the waters seas. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let the land sprout with vegetation. Every sort of seed-bearing plant and tree that grows uh, seed-bearing fruit. These seeds will then produce the kinds of plants and trees from which they came. And that is what happened. The land produced vegetation, all sorts of seed-bearing plants and trees with seed-bearing fruit. Their seeds produced plants and trees of the same kind. And God, he saw that it was good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking the third day. Then God said, let lights appear in the sky. Separate, to separate the day from the night. Let them be signs to mark the seasons, days, and years. Let these lights in the sky shine down on the earth. And that is what happened. God made two great lights. The one larger to govern the day and the one smaller to govern the night. He also made the stars. And God set these lights in the sky to light the earth. To govern the day and the night and to separate the light from the darkness. And God saw that it was good. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fourth day. 
Then God said, let the waters swarm with fish and other life. Let the skies be filled with birds of every kind. So God created the great sea creatures and everything that scurries and swarms in water. He created every sort of bird, each producing offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God blessed them, saying, Be fruitful and multiply. Let the fish fill the seas and let the birds multiply on the earth. And evening passed and morning came, marking the fifth day. Then God said, Let the earth produce every sort of animal, each producing offspring of the same kind, livestock and small animals that scurry along the ground, all the wild animals. And that's what happened. God made all sorts of wild animals, livestock, and small birds, each able to produce offspring of the same kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image to be like us. They will reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, the livestock, all the wild animals on the earth, and the small animals that scurry along the ground. And so God created human beings in his own image. In the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. Then God blessed them and said, be fruitful and multiply. Fill the earth and govern it, reign over the fish in the sea, the birds in the sky, and all the animals that scurry along the ground. Then God said, look, I have given you every seed... <clears throat> bearing plants throughout the earth and all the fruit for your food. And I have given every green plant as food to all the wild animals, the birds in the sky, the small animals that scurry along the ground, everything that has life, and that is what happened. Then God looked over all he had made, and he saw that it was very good. And evening passed, and morning came, marking that sixth day. Well, now that we've read it, let's take a minute up here on the board to summarize exactly what it is that we've read. Because there are some big things that we can learn about our God here in this story. Okay, first of all, we have God who enters into this world which is full of chaos and darkness. And in the middle of this chaos and darkness, God speaks out to it and things begin to come in order. And so with his voice, God creates God speaks and things start to happen. Now, when he creates, he does so in a really particular order. And I think it's important that we take a look at just what this order is like. It begins with God saying, let there be light. And so on the first day, God makes light. Now, listen, I don't have room to write all this stuff up here. Okay, so I'm just going to put a letter and I'm going to trust your brains to keep track of what I'm writing. Can you do that? I have faith in you. Here we go. All right. Secondly, on the second day, God says, let's create uh, or let there be a, a, a sky and a sea. And so he, he separates the waters from above from the waters below, sky and sea. And then on the third day, God, he creates dry ground. And what's really cool about this, something I'm sure I've pointed out to you before, is that after God creates each of these things, on the subsequent days, day four, day five, and day six, God goes on to create the things that live in those days. There's real poetry here in the way this story goes. On the first day, God creates light, and so on the fourth day, he creates the things that live in the light. Somebody help me out. What is it that lives in the light? It's the light, <laughs> like the sun and the moon and the stars, okay? That's the way it goes, the sun and the moon and the stars. Okay, how about on day five? What does he create that lives in the sky and in the sea? 
the birds and the fish. That's exactly right. He creates the birds and the fish. Okay, now on day three, he creates dry ground. And so on day six, then, he creates the things that live on dry ground. What lives on dry ground? Yeah, he creates the, uh, the animals and he creates the people. Now, after he sees all the things that he has made, one of the things that he does over and over again is that he says, this is good. But on that last day, on that sixth day, he says something different. He doesn't just say this is good. He says this is very good. And he seems so pleased with what he does that he takes a minute just to sit down and appreciate it. He rests. And so here's what it says uh, in that next uh, section. It says, so the creation of the heavens and the earth and everything in them was completed. And on the seventh day, God had finished his work of creation, so he rested from all of his work. And God blessed the seventh day and declared it holy because it was the day when he rested from all of his work of creation. I remember one time Brandon and I were working on one of these backgrounds in here, one of these like stage designs, and we were uh, working and we had just finished it. And after we finished it, we sat right there in the front row. Our arms were crossed, our legs were up, and we were just like staring at the beautiful work that we had created, you know? We were so proud of ourselves sitting there. And about the, the time we started thinking really highly of ourselves, Rosa, the church secretary, came through that door. And she, she walked up and she, instead of staring at our beautiful work, was staring at us. And we could tell she had something to say. Rosa's always got something to say. And she said, she said, uh, men are the only people that do that. And we said, what are you talking about? And she said, men are the only people who sit back and look at something they've already done. She said, women get up and do more. And I think that was her way of telling us we probably ought to get up and clean the mess up that we had made, right? But there you go. But that's kind of what God does in this story. Isn't that funny? God looks over all the things that he has made, and he says about a man, this is really good. And then he just rests in the knowledge that he has created. This story has an awfully lot to teach us about who God is. And I think among the many things that this story might teach us about who God is, this story teaches us just what a powerful God we serve. In fact, God calls himself the Almighty God a number of times throughout the Old Testament. And there are plenty of stories in the Bible that back up this idea that God is full of power. It's pretty amazing, isn't it, to think that God can just speak and things happen. I mean, I don't know if you're in my shoes, but if I speak to my children things don't happen, right? And yet God can speak even to mighty waves and things start to get into order. God is all-powerful. In fact, over the course of Christian history, there's been a couple of words that we've used to kind of describe what this is about. We use the words omnipotent, omniscient, and omnipresent. Have you heard those words before? Each of them talks about just how big God is. Omnipotent means that God is all-powerful. Omniscience means that God knows everything. And omnipresence means that God can be everywhere at all times. In fact, the, the Bible doesn't use those words, right? Those have come along later in church history. But the Bible does talk about those things. And just like the Bible is best at, it talks about those things in terms of metaphors and stories. If you go look through the pages of the Bible, especially the parts 
that are uh, uh, written in, in this genre called apocalyptic literature, what you'll find is that around God's throne, there are often these mighty creatures. And these creatures which surround God's throne and worship him are meant to be symbols of his power. And sometimes those creatures are covered in eyes, or maybe they're covered in wings. And it doesn't take long if you're thinking about it and looking for the symbolism to recognize what that's all about. I mean, what is the great thing about having wings anyway? You can fly. And what's the great thing about having lots of wings? Well, you can fly anywhere you want all the time. You don't get tired, right? God can be anywhere. What's the great thing about having eyes? You can see the danger that's coming in front of you, right? You know what's going on around you. So what happens if you're covered in eyes from head to toe all over? You not only can see, you can see it all. And so these creatures are just metaphors for the fact that God can see everything and that he can do everything. In the book of Revelation, another one of those pieces of apocalyptic literature, there's a, a, another symbol that gets used. It is Jesus. He's pictured as this lamb that has been slaughtered, but he's still alive, right? Uh, Jesus, the, the Lord who has died and yet is risen. And this lamb is no normal lamb. It's a lamb who is covered with eyes, yes, but a lamb who also is covered with horns. Well, there's only one reason to have a set of horns if you are a sheep, right? That's to use to knock other sheep in the head with, right? And so that's what the horns are symbols of. They're symbols of the great power that Jesus has. The Bible teaches us that God is all-powerful. And the Bible also teaches us that God, he is holy. In fact, that's exactly the word he used for that seventh day, which he sets apart from all the others. This day is special because it is holy. And so God is holy. The word holy just means special or different or set apart. Different from all of the other things that have been created because it was by his words that they were created in the first place. This first story that we read together here the very first story in the Bible teaches us that God is all-powerful. It teaches us that God is holy. But here's the thing about that story. It is unsatisfying. I mean, just think about it. If that story was all that you knew about God, you wouldn't know that much at all. Our God is all-powerful, and that's good news. That's big news. But that's not the end of the story. And so lucky for us, the story goes on. And we read more about how it was that God created the world in Genesis chapter 2. And so let's read that together. Again, buckle in. Here we go. When the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, neither wild plants nor grains were growing on the earth. For the Lord God had not yet sent rain to water the earth, and there were no people to cultivate the soil. Instead, springs came up from the ground and watered all of the land. Then the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. He breathed the breath of life into the man's nostrils, and the man became a living being. Then the Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east, and there he placed the man he had made. The Lord God made all sorts of trees grow up from the ground, 
trees that were beautiful and that produced delicious fruit. In the middle of the garden, he placed the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river flowed from the land of Eden, watering the garden and then dividing into four branches. The first branch, called the Pashan, flowed around the land of Havilah, where gold is found. The gold of that land is exceptionally pure. Aromatic resin and onyx stone are also found there. The second branch, called the Gihon, flowed around the entire land of Cush. The third branch, called the Tigris, flowed east of the land of Asher. The fourth branch is called the Euphrates. The Lord God placed the man in the Garden of Eden to tend and to watch over it. But the Lord God warned him, you may freely eat the fruit of every tree in the garden, except the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. If you eat its fruit, you are sure to die. Then the Lord God said, it is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper that is just right for him. So the Lord God formed from the ground all of the wild animals and all the birds of the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And the man chose a name for each one. He gave names to all the livestock, all the birds of the sky, all the wild animals. But still... There was no helper who was just right for him. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while the man slept, the Lord God took out one of his ribs and closed up the opening. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib, and he brought her to the man. At last the man exclaimed, This one is bone for my bone and flesh for my flesh. She will be called woman because she was taken from man. This explains why a man leaves his father and mother and is joined to his wife and the two are united into one. Now the man and his wife were both naked, but they felt no shame. The story is a story about how it is that God created his people. And I think maybe it would be worth us charting on the board up here exactly what this story is like too. Okay, first of all, we find from the very beginning a difference in this story from the other. God has a new name here. Did anybody catch it? What's God called in this story? Oh, you didn't catch it, did you? He's not called God. He's called the Lord God. Somebody out there got it that I couldn't find. The Lord God. Now, this is code. It's code because you might know that uh, ancient Jewish people, actually Jewish people even today, don't say God's name. They don't say God's name out of great reverence for his name. And so instead of saying God's name, they put the word Lord in there instead. And so in your Bible, anytime you see the word Lord and all four of the letters are written in capital letters, that tells you that that's actually God's name written there. We just don't say it. And so instead of just calling God, God, he gets an actual name in this story, a name that we're not going to find out until much later in the story, right? Not until we get down to the book of Exodus when he talks about it with Moses. Okay, now, God, he is here in the story creating. But this time, when God creates, he does not do so with his mouth. He doesn't do it by speaking. He does it in a different way. Who caught how it was? How does God create in this story? He uses his hands. God reaches down and picks up dirt and he molds it and shapes it into a person. And then he takes that person and he breathes into its nostrils the breath of life. God creates by using his hands to touch the things that he has created. 
And when God creates, he does so in a particular order, right? He begins by creating right up front, off the bat, a man. And after he creates this man, he creates a place for the man to live in. And so he creates for the man a garden. And then after he creates the garden, he realizes that it's not good for man to be alone. And so he starts to create some buddies for Adam. He creates the animals. And then after he creates the animals, he realizes that there is no animal among them that is good enough. And so God takes a part of Eve, I mean, a part of Adam, and he makes from it Eve, this, this perfect partner for him, right? He creates the woman last. And so this story teaches us some really important things about who God is. It teaches us that God is a God who loves us so much that he cares enough to be concerned about what's going on in our lives. Any God you might could imagine, if there were others, right? Any God could create something. That's not what this one does. It creates something and then it cares for it. I mean, he looks at Adam and he, he says, it's not good for you to be by yourself. I've got to do something about this. He looks at Adam and says, you know, you really better watch that one tree right there in the middle. You can eat from all the other ones, but you watch out for that one, right? God deeply cares. And the Bible tells us that that's exactly the character of who God is. All throughout the rest of the pages of this book, we learn that God is a God who is full of love. In fact, that's what it says in 1 John chapter 4. You might know this verse, 1 John 4, uh, verse 8. It says, anyone who does not love does not know God, for God is love. God showed how much he loved us by sending his one and only son into the world so that we might have eternal life through him. This is real love. Not that we love God, but that he loved us and that he sent his son as a sacrifice to take away our sins. God loves his creation. And more than that, this story, if we go on to read in chapter 3, teaches us that God is a God of mercy. You know God tells him not to eat from the fruit, but it's not long before he does, right? And the whole world falls into a mess. And of course, there are consequences for what Adam has done. Sin brings consequences and death into the world. But God does not give up on Adam and Eve. He doesn't give up on this human project that he has created. In fact, what he does instead is offer them this little sign of grace by making clothes for them to wear. And he continues to be in relationship with them, even outside of the garden. Our God is a God of mercy. That's what the story teaches us. Second Peter, it says exactly the same. In fact, if you go to 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, here's what it says. It says, the Lord isn't really being slow about his promises, as some think. No, God is just being patient. He's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. Our God is a God of love and he is a God of mercy. Our God is a God of faithfulness. That's the way he describes himself when he reaches out to Moses and the rest of his people in the book of Deuteronomy. God says, I am faithful. 
this story, it teaches us an awfully lot of important things about who God is. A God who loves us enough to touch his mouth to our nostrils and blow air into them. That's a big deal, right? This is a God who loves us so much, he lovingly shapes us with his own hands. This is a God who walks with us in the cool of the evening and speaks with us. This is a God who cares about us enough, that he's worried enough about our problems, that he comes to make sure we won't be alone. This is a God who loves us. Now here's the thing, and we're just going to be open and honest and adults about this, right? You probably have looked at the board long enough to recognize that these stories seem pretty different, don't they? One story where God is called God, another where he's called Lord, one where he creates with his voice, another where he creates with his hands, one where the order of creation is very different from the order of creation in the second story. And that causes a little bit of confusion sometimes. People look at these two stories and they think to themselves, well, how is this possible? How can one story say one thing and one story say the other? Callie and I actually got in this conversation in the car the other day. She had just left uh, Bob and Sarah's uh, Wednesday night class, and they've been talking about some really big things with the, the junior high students and, um, and high school students. And as they were, were talking, they talked about creation and evolution and a whole bunch of things, you know. And so Callie had all these questions. So we got in the car, and she was asking me all these questions. And I was trying to answer them, and I was trying to, like, avoid answering some of them just, just because I'm not smart enough to answer them, you know. And, and at one point, uh, she asked this question that made me think that I just needed to kind of tell her this story. And so that's what I did. I told her both of these stories as they're presented in Genesis 1 and Genesis 2. And then I asked her, I said, okay, Callie. There are the two stories, one that Genesis 1 tells us about how God created the world and one that Genesis 2 tells us about how God created the world. I said, which one do you think is true? And she looked at me a little bit like I was stupid. And then she said, well, both of them. And I said, yeah, exactly. Because which one of these stories would you want to take out of the Bible? I mean, think about it. Which one of these stories would you want to take out? In the first place, the story of this God who is huge and powerful, who almost seems distant, like, like holding himself at an arm's length away from us. And in the second, the story of a God who loves us so much that he literally cradles us in his own arms. Which story would you leave out? Neither of them. Because it's only in combination that these stories give us a true picture of who God is. The mighty God who creates the universe, and yet the mighty God who loves us so much that he's willing to come down and leave behind privilege for the sake of humility. This mighty God who's willing to come down and leave behind all of that power to make himself weak in order that he can die on the cross, in order that we can live. It makes me think of this story from the Civil War. They were um, in the middle of fighting. Lincoln was back home in Washington. And there was this soldier who felt that he had been treated unfairly by the army. And he wanted a meeting with Lincoln. He wanted a meeting so that he could set things straight, you know, and make sure that uh, everything got straightened out for him. And so he went to the, the, the gates of, the, of the, the, the White House and he tried to get inside and, 
the guards there uh, wouldn't let him in. And so day after day, several days in a row, he goes and tries, but they won't let him in. Instead, he just sits outside and waits because he wants, hopefully, someday to get the chance to get inside and, and, and make his case known to the president. Well, one day this little boy walks by. The little boy says, hey, what are you doing out here? I've seen you like, like three or four days. You've been hanging out around here. What are you doing? And the fellow says, well, I'm trying to get into the talk to the president because I think I've been cheated, but I can't get inside because the guards won't let me in, and I don't know how to make an appointment. And the little boy says, well, just come with me. And so he grabs him by the hand, and he walks up to the gate, and the guards move out of the way, and they walk on inside. And then they walk on in, up the lawn, into the house, into the president's office. And there they are standing right in front of Abraham Lincoln. And the soldier gets a chance to make his case. And why do they get to do this? All because the little boy who led him inside was Tad Lincoln, the president's son. And see, that's kind of how it is with all of us. To all the rest of the world, the president is at arm's length. He's got power. He can do a lot of things. But none of us can just walk into his office and talk to him, you know? But not so if you're the president's son. And so it is with God. And these first few pages of Genesis, they tell us this. God is this all-powerful God who can do mighty things simply by speaking. You don't get more powerful than that. But we are his children. He is not pushing us away. No, he's bringing us in because he cares about us. Because he wants us to succeed. Because he loves us. This is the story of who God is in a nutshell. Which story would you leave out? of the Bible. Well, I'm pretty happy they're right there. Even if they do say something a little different sometimes. This is the story of the gospel in a nutshell. It's the story of Jesus, who we gather here to worship every week. The God who left behind his throne in heaven to come here to earth to be like us in order that he could die for us and save us. And so today, as we gather around God's table, we do so for that exact purpose. The purpose of worshiping Jesus, of remembering his sacrifice for all of us. By making his name holy. The God who first created us. And then who bought us in order that we could be made brand new. Our Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took some bread and blessed it and broke it. He shared it with all of his friends and said, Take, eat, this is my body. That same night, he took the cup and he blessed it and poured it out. He shared it with all of his friends and said, Drink this, all of you, this is the new covenant in my blood, shed for the sins of the world. And so we now do what our Lord Jesus asked us to do. We eat some bread and drink some juice in order to remember him. Let's eat and drink together as a family.